Hello, everybody. Hopefully this podcast finds you well. Last time you guys listened in, you were looking at how the Cold War began from 1945 going all the way through to 1960. Uh, You guys looked at how the United States and the Soviet Union, after the Nazis had been uh, defeated, started to focus more of their Cold War tension or their uh, tension towards one another. Once again, we looked at how one common enemy is gone now. These frenemies start pointing the finger at one another. There was one part that I forgot to mention to you guys. This is kind of an addendum piece. But in, in 1945, there are quite a bit of historians that argue that the United States and the Soviet Union, besides the what we've covered as far as the tension going on through Germany, should Germany be divided? Should it be not divided? Does the United States want to spread democracy and stop the spread of communism? Is the Soviet Union looking to spread communism? Those four major points or goals that you guys looked on either side. There is one other major event that I forgot to include that also a lot of historians have been focusing on, and that's the use of the atomic weapon. Remember that the United yeah, the United States tests in uh, Alam- um, Alamogordo, um, the first atomic bomb, the Trinity test, in 1945. And then once the atomic bomb has been developed, they are going to create two versions of uh, the atomic bomb. One will be a little boy, um, and the other one is fat man. Uh, and they will be dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in uh, August of 1945. There is plenty to say that the dropping of the atomic bomb potentially is the starting point in which the United States and the Soviet Union start to see uh, an increase in Chile relationships with one another. And actually at at Potsdam, if you guys remember that um, Roosevelt already had passed on and Truman was the U.S. president at Potsdam. Uh, And at Potsdam, that's when Stalin decided that he was going to change his mind about allowing democratic elections in Eastern Europe, that he was going to uh, deny that. And here from a Western perspective, we start to believe that the Soviet Union is creeping in Eastern Europe or simply taking it over as some part of a, a global um, a communist spread. Well, at Potsdam, um, this is a, a major event dealing with the uh, nuclear weapon. At Potsdam, Truman, at a, at a certain point during the conference, uh, he and his translator step over to the side and get Stalin's attention. And Stalin is next to his translator and not too far away from his secretary of state, uh, Molotov. And Truman turns to Stalin and says, Stalin, I want to tell you, or Joseph, whatever, I want to tell you that the United States, we have, we have a weapon, very big, lots of destruction. And Truman, when he said this to Stalin, he was attempting to read Stalin's face. And Stalin was somebody who was very stoic, didn't show a lot, didn't show his cards, you know, one of those perfect poker players, right? Didn't want to show you either his anger or his fear in his face. And he turned to Truman and and said, and translated something to say, good, I I hope you use it against Japan to end the war. And then simply turned away and walked away. And Truman was kind of taken by his stoic demeanor that he turned to the translator and he said something to the matter of, did did you translate that correctly? Did you say it? Like I said, yeah, I believe I, I believe I did. Well, Stalin, even though he might have showed or displayed no emotions, he went almost immediately to Molotov and he told Molotov in not so many words that the United States had a weapon and the Soviet Union needed to have one immediately. And so there is a cause to say that that interaction between Truman and Stalin um, 
the United States potentially showing our cards that we do have a nuclear weapon, trying to flex our muscle towards the Soviet Union. Um, I, I think Stalin at one point might actually request a, a nuclear weapon and Truman says something like, oh, heavens no, why would we give you one? Uh, adds even more to the tension. But once we we drop the atomic bombs on Japan, we notice the Soviet Union does not expand any more eastward. They will end up in North Korea, and that's when the Koreas are divided between North Communist uh, North Korea and I wouldn't even say anywhere close to a democratic state in South Korea, but eventually, um, you know, South Korea. I think it was still under some sort of a, a dictatorship, but a anti-communist dictatorship in the 1940s and the 1950s. Uh, and so there, there is, once again, cause to say that the creation of the weapon, the dropping of the atomic bombs could have been one of the major starting points, flashpoints uh, of the increase in tension between the United States and the Soviet Union. And then once the Soviet Union has their atomic weapon, then it's kind of like an equal playing field. And I'd say just to throw that out, kind of an idea of an equal playing field. Well, here in, in this these set of notes, um, in this podcast, we're going to look at the next step in the Cold War. Some of the major events that took place between 1953, because 53 is a major moment where Joseph Stalin dies and the next leadership of the Soviet Union will take over. And we'll go all the way through to 1968. And then we'll look at how European society changed uh, from the 1950s through to about 1970s, early 1980s. And then the third and our final portion that we'll be looking at for the Cold War is the end of the Cold War on how the Soviet Union collapses, how communism ends in the Soviet Union, as well as Eastern Europe. All right, so let's move on with these ones. Hopefully you guys have your PowerPoint, Post-War Society AP 2020. That's the name of it. It'll be attached to the lesson. So let's move on to the second slide. All right, second slide you're going to notice here a picture of a man that looks nothing like Joseph Stalin because it's not Joseph Stalin. That is Nikita Khrushchev. In 1953, Stalin dies. He ends up having a uh, an aneurysm while he was uh, about ready to go to bed. I think we might have mentioned this before. Uh, ends up dropping the floor and urinates himself. And for the next hours, uh, slowly, slowly as his uh, as his head, I think it's also a stroke, excuse me, not aneurysm, but a stroke as his brain, certain portions of his brain are closing down. He's going through, you know, hell and agonizing pain. And eventually when they find him, he's on his last breath and, and dies in 1953. The man who takes over power, the major political player here in the Soviet Union is going to be Nikita Khrushchev. And from 53 to 56, for the most part, it's basically Stalin-esque type of period until 1956. 1956 is a big change in leadership and the direction of the Soviet Union with Khrushchev. In 1956, Khrushchev will start what is known as the de-Stalinization period of the Soviet Union. All right, by de-Stalinization, de without Stalinization, without Stalin, or to remove the memory of Stalin from the Soviet Union. You guys will be reading a little bit further on in just a moment. Uh, in 1956 as well, there are some talks between the Soviet Union and the United States, I believe in what are known as the kitchen debates. And out of that, there is this belief that there can be a peaceful coexistence between the Soviet Union and the United States. Now notice this is not too far removed uh, from the early tension period that we were talking about from 1945 to 1960. So here we are in the late 50s going into the 1960s, where there seems to be, you know, please understand that this is at a period where the United States is very unwilling to listen to the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is willing, unwilling to listen to the United States as both nations are spying on one another, are suspicious of one another. But it does seem to be 
that there is a, a small amount of relaxing of tension within the Cold War when new leadership comes in, right? Khrushchev is not Stalin and Stalin is not Khrushchev. And so Khrushchev is gonna be taking the Soviet Union in a different direction. So I want you to take a moment, please, if you guys can locate, uh, there is a Google Docs that has readings, four readings on it. I need you to read the first one, the secret speech to the, cl uh, to the closed session of the 20th Party Congress in February 25th, 1956 by Nikita Khrushchev. And then you guys have another Google Doc um, available that has the three questions. It'll have quite three questions in four different parts. They match each of the readings. You need to answer the first three questions that pertain specifically to the secret speech to the closed uh, session, the 20, 20th Party Congress. All right, so please take a moment to read that, answer the questions, and we'll come back. Here we are, back again. Hopefully you guys press pause and now you're pressing play again. So de-Stalinization, here in the secret speech that uh, Nikita Khrushchev gave, this is really the starting point for de-Stalinization in Russia. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev is going to open up the door, and this has been a, a door that has been potentially locked for many years, maybe even cemented off, brick-walled brick up and around. Um, Nikita Khrushchev is going to break down that wall, is going to open up the door, and expose a lot of the skeletons dealing with the Stalinist regime in the Soviet Union. And Stalin is going to be made into a massive murderer, and that he was, of course, uh, and a villain, a man who murdered his own people during the purges in the 1930s. Um, and many things are going to start to change in the Soviet Union. Um, first and foremost, if you guys click to the next uh, image, you guys are going to see statues that are collapsing. One of them is a cartoon of a Stalinist, uh, a massive statue of Stalin with his hand in his jacket as he's falling. Another one shows a boot and a head that have been cut off from a um, from Stalin statues. Another one that is towards the bottom left-hand side of a statue of Stalin that's being removed. One of the things that de-Stalinization is going to get rid of in the Soviet Union are monuments to Joseph Stalin. Now, that's not monuments to all communism. Uh, you can still, in Russia today, walk around from city to city and see plenty of monuments to Lenin because Lenin was the first communist, right, the first man who brought the communist revolution to the population of the Soviet Union. And Nikita Khrushchev was uh, made sure that he distanced not only himself from Stalin, and there's a reason why in just a moment, but also to make sure that Lenin was distanced from Stalin. Because if, if we were going to go through a period of de-Leninization and de-Stalinization, if Lenin and Stalin were the first and second leaders of the Soviet Union, what's really the culprit? What's really the, the ideology that's brought nothing but suffering to the Soviet Union? It's not going to be the men. People eventually are going to say it's communism. Lenin was the first communist leader. Joseph Stalin was the first communist totalitarian dictator of the Soviet Union. And it seems to be that since the inception of communism in the 1917 revolution, that it's only been negative. So what did Nikita Khrushchev do? He kept Lenin sacrosanct, saintly, all right? Then he was kind of untouchable. And he threw a lot of the shade in Stalin's direction. And, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. I mean, here we're talking about a guy who is a, a murderer of his own people. And for many years, the propaganda that was established made off Stalin to be this great father, great grandfather of his population. Uh, people who uh, adored him went disappearing. People who uh, 
thought he was horrible when disappearing and people who didn't care one way or the other when disappearing. All right, it was a period of, of turmoil and terror in the Soviet Union. Another thing that also changed a lot were textbooks. Let's say you were in 1956 Russia and you were going to be a history major. All right, you had just finished your studies and let's say you get your bachelor's or you get your master's in history and you've studied from Russian textbooks, Russianist period, Stalinist period. Well, now that they're exposing Stalin and the state of propaganda that he had in power, well, then that means the textbooks have to change as well. Uh, tests are going to be thrown out. Um, your degree might not be valid because you pretty much were looking at just propaganda and not a lot of truth in the period. You might have to go back and take your tests again or restudy the history that you thought was true and ended up becoming false. So destalinization usually is a period of opening up that door, that, um, that vision of the nasty terrorist world of, de -Stalin, uh, of Stalin and having Nikita Khrushchev take Russia in a different direction. Now, Khrushchev and Stalin were good friends of one another. Khrushchev is one of the last kind of guys of the old world communist state. And he was one of only a handful of guys to actually survive the Stalinist period. Another thing that Khrushchev is doing and for his own benefit is that he's also distancing himself from Stalin. All right. When Khrushchev was good buddies with Stalin, what was Khrushchev doing when Stalin was murdering people? Did he speak up and tell Stalin, hey, Joseph, we need to stop? Did he stay silent? And there's some criticism of him on that, even from the American standpoint. And uh, his response was, um, well, basically was doing what everybody else was doing. I shut up. I didn't say a, a darn word. And I kind of kept to myself because it became a game of survival for many of these guys who wanted to see light past the Stalinist period. Um, but Nikita Khrushchev, I, I think one of the major things you got to look at is that he's trying to save his own butt. Right? He's trying to say, I am not Stalin. I am different from Stalin. Yes, I knew Stalin. Yes, I worked with Stalin, but I'm a new communist. I'm a new direction of communism in a way of trying to save his life, his view, and have the rest of, of Russia kind of look at him in a positive light to say, oh, he's not uh, Stalin. He's our uh, a new reformist type of communist. Um, if you guys go on to the, uh, the next slide, you're going to see Hungary and a couple of images of students who are protesting. So, um, also in 1956, not only has Stalin, um, or excuse me, not only has the Soviet Union exposed its uh, its skeletons in the closets of Stalin, uh, Stalinist Russia, and they've tried to expose all the nastiness of the previous three decades, but now perhaps it's time for Russia to change. And if Russia is going to be taking over Eastern Europe, like we noted in the first set of notes on the Cold War, well, if, if you were Polish or Czech or Hungarian or Slovak or Bulgarian or Yugoslavian or Albanian or East German, and you came under Stalinist control when Stalin was still alive and you were terrified of Russia and Stalinist Russia when he was around. And now all of a sudden 1956 comes around and Stalin's dead and a new guy's in power. And this new guy does not seem to be as terrifying as Stalin. I mean, Nikita Khrushchev, kind of small, but chubby, a real rounded guy, big space between his teeth, likes to laugh. Um, you know, kind of seems to be very uh, amicable and friendly 
with individuals, maybe even you know, to a point where it's uh, part of his, his downfall. Um, but he doesn't seem to be the very stoic, lacking of expression type of guy that the Soviet Union was so used to. And this sets up a big questioning moment in Eastern Europe. If those puppet states see new leadership in the Soviet Union and that that new leadership is not like the old, terrifying leadership of the Soviet Union, then it makes the Soviet Union look first and foremost as being potentially weak. That if Eastern Europe was to get a little more backbone, stand up and start to speak out against Russia and declare itself independent or try to break away, well then it's not Stalinist Russia that they're breaking away from. Perhaps Khrushchev might allow nations like Hungary or Poland or Czechoslovakia or Bulgaria to leave the Soviet state and potentially become an independent country back to being an independent country before, uh, like it was before the Second World War. And so the first demonstrations start taking place, uh, major demonstrations in October of 1956, and it's Hungarian students that begin to demonstrate uh, and oppose the Communist Party, the Hungarian Communist Party, and start to oppose and criticize Russian control. Now, Remember that Hungary is supposed to be an independent country, but it's it's really a puppet state. There is a communist party in Hungary, but that communist party oftentimes is controlled by the Soviet Union. Right? If the communist party of Hungary is going to do something, well, it's they're probably going to have to get the okay from Russia before they do it. So please take a moment to read the demands of the Hungarian students in Budapest, October 22nd, 1956 and then answer the three questions that follow that. When you're done with that, please watch the Hungarian Revolt. There's going to be, I think it's about a seven or eight minute clip of the uh, revolt that takes place in 56, and then what the Soviet Union does against the revolt. And then you also want to read the statement from the Soviet government concerning Hungary, um, and then Emre Naja's last message, and then the six questions. There's going to be two parts for that last part. There's the Soviet government speaking out on what's happening in Hungary, and then the Hungarian Communist Party leadership. Uh, his uh, leader, his name is Emre Naj, and he's going to give his last message, and then you want to answer the six questions there, and then we'll we'll come back. Here we are again, back again. Hopefully you guys press pause, and uh, here we are again. Um, some of the demands that the um, Hungarian students wanted, right? They wanted to have um, an independent real movement from the Soviet Union, right? They wanted to distance themselves politically from the Soviet Union. At first, it was simply just a small student movement and eventually moved into a more national movement. You can see in some of the flags, there are the, um, the Hungarian flag, and it has the communist symbol for the Hungarian Communist Party cut out, making it seem at least, and as you guys saw in the video, that uh, the, the students of Hungary felt that they were liberating themselves from communist control, both within their country, but also the, the Soviet Union. And eventually the Soviet Union, um, the, the Hungarians are going to build up weapons, gain weapons, and start fighting and trying to push out not only the Hungarian communist forces, but also Soviet forces. And in the end, unfortunately, the Soviet Union is going to come in. They are going to crush the revolt, and they are going to arrest Emre Naj, and eventually he is going to be tried and executed. Many of those students who fought in the Hungarian revolt were under the age of 18. Some of them were 16, 15 years old. One of the nasty things that the Soviet Union did for those Hungarian students is that they held them in prison for all these years. So let's say from 15, and then the moment they turned 18, 
They celebrated their 18th birthday and the Soviet Union had them executed. Just to say that they didn't execute a child, but they executed them when they turned 18 and became uh, an adult at, uh, at that part. Now, that seems to be pretty nasty, uh, pretty nasty thing to do, to hold on to kids. And you know the end result is going to be you're going to execute them. But you want to execute them when they're the right age, not as a child. You wait till their, their 18th birthday. Uh, Hungary believed the Soviet Union to be weak under Nikita Khrushchev. And so the Hungarian students really gambled. They gambled for an independent movement, an independence movement, and eventually the Soviet Union came in, crushed the revolt. In the United States, there's nothing really the U.S. could do. Hopefully you heard from the video. If the United States was going to get involved in 1956, this is already after the Soviet Union has nuclear uh, weapons and hydrogen weapons and ICBMs are coming right around the corner. There is no way that the United States can offer support to the Hungarians. We'll applaud them. We'll applaud them all we want. We'll tell them, hey, keep going, keep fighting, fight for your independence. But there's no way that we can give them weapons. There's no way that we can send an army into Hungary. That's Soviet-controlled Eastern Europe. We do that, we risk generating a third world war. And that's something that the United States and the world is not going to want to do. So 1956 becomes one of the first times that Soviet control is threatened in Eastern Europe. Uh, but the Soviets come back in, flex their muscle, muscle, crush the revolt, and kind of it goes back to the status quo. This is Russian territory. Uh, this is the Russian puppet government system. If you guys move on to the next slide, you're going to see 1960, Khrushchev visits the United States in a major change of events. In 1958, there are um, debates that take place between Vice President uh, Nixon and uh, the Premier of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev. Um, out of that comes this idea that maybe the United States and the Soviet Union can find some sort of coexistence, a peaceful coexistence, instead of the terror of you know, worrying about nuclear genocide and uh, the dropping of atomic bombs on one another in this era of the Cold War. And then in 1960, Khrushchev is going to plan a two-week tour of the United States. He'll come into New York. He'll spend some time in New York. He'll go across the country. He'll come to LA. He'll go up to, I think, San Francisco or somewhere up close to San Francisco. And then eventually go back and have a summit with then-president at the time, President Eisenhower. Um, I, this part, I, I'm not going to hold you guys on too much of the uh, the quiz. But one of the things I, I want to show you is some video footage. This comes from PBS. PBS did a, um, a series back, or a um, I think it's like a, an hour and a half series back in 2014. Um, I think it's like Khrushchev. Um, Grand Tour, the U.S. Tour, something like that. Um, and so there are three clips, three YouTube clips. Um, I think there's something like seven minutes, seven to eight minutes. I'd say check them out. Um, you know, here we are in the middle of the Cold War, and here's this guy who, from what the video is going to show you, seems to be a pretty, pretty friendly guy and is hoping that his trip here to the United States would open up some sort of bridge of understanding, not to say that the Soviet Union is going to capitulate and is going to surrender and say, okay, United States, we will give up everything. We'll give up our nuclear weapons for peace. No, because the Soviet Union still has to take care of what it is that the Soviet Union wants and what their vision of the world is. That's that's what is in their best interest, much like what's in our best interest as the United States, right? We're not going to stop doing what's good for us because it upsets another country around the world or upsets another country half a world away. So even though this idea is about creating at least 
a speaking point, it doesn't necessarily mean that there has to be some sort of agreement that comes out of it. But one of the things that comes out of this trip is that we can talk to the Russians and the Russians can talk with us. And it it creates an image of Khrushchev, not as this terror uh, or terrorist or terror, uh, you know, Soviet red terror, but it creates this image that the Soviet Union has people just like us. And it kind of reduces Russians, instead of being scary communists, it reduces Russians to being people. As crazy as that sounds. All right, the first video clip that you're going to see here is when Khrushchev arrives in America and he is followed. I mean, this is like top story in 1960 that the premier of the Soviet Union, the scary communists, are coming over to visit the United States. And he, Khrushchev, will be criticized one way and another. Um, he'll get down from the plane and all of his movements are going to be criticized on the news. Look at him. He's holding up his hat from the sun. He's trying to show up our great American president. Oh, look at him in the uh, in the uh, convertible. He's getting all squished in and he has his arm around the president. He's trying to show up the president. Everything, uh, even a present that they give him. You'll see in the video clip, uh, Khrushchev gave <laughs> a small little um, ball that looks like a small version of Sputnik. Remember that Sputnik was the first satellite that the Soviet Union put in outer space. And this was a, at least in the United States, it, it seems like the U.S. kind of took it as like Russia was giving the United States the middle finger when it came to the advantage that the Soviets had as far as jet propulsion and sending satellites into outer space. And I think at one point you can see that Eisenhower is not too happy with the present. Because the president is being, it's being exposed and shown to everybody who's snapping pictures and videotaping it. And you can see the president has a smile on his face one moment and then not so much of a smile the next time. But Khrushchev, there he is, big smile on his face. And so everybody's going to criticize him, right? Is he doing it because he is trying to show up the United States? Is he doing it because he's genuine? Well, the news is going to play him off as being this vicious villain. Now, I don't want to make him out to be a saint because remember, only a couple of years ago, he ended up having the Soviet tanks go into Hungary and crush the Hungarian revolt and eventually had children until their 18th birthday, or at least last of their 18th birthday, and then have them executed. So please, he's not a saint. Um, but what he is, Khrushchev is attempting to do is show his humanity and really felt that he was going to be welcomed with open arms here in the United States. All right, the U.S. is a land of freedom. And here anybody can come and make of themselves what they want to make. At least that's what the image of the United States was. And so he kind of comes here with that in mind. Now he's still a politician. Don't get me wrong. He's still a politician. He's got to look out for what the Soviets want back in Russia, but you know, he kind of likes the limelight. He likes the the cameras. And so maybe he'll embellish a little bit. And for some Americans, it, it actually works. It actually shows him as being a human being and people kind of warm up to him. You'll see in the video clip when he arrives to uh, America that not a lot of Americans wanted him here. There were protesters as he was going down New York uh, in his first time in, in New York. And here he is in a convertible and he's waving. You know, he's got a big smile on his face and he's waving at all these people. And all these people are lining the streets to see the Soviet dictator, the communist dictator, and they're not waving back. They are just, some of them are really upset. Some are holding signs saying, get the hell out of here. We don't want you here. You know, you communist out. And, and there he is, big smile on his face. I think at one point, he actually stops the car. If I'm not mistaken, it's here or it might be in a different place. But he stops the car and he goes off to the crowd because he wants to mingle with the people. He wants to be uh, amongst the people. And he goes up and he sees a guy who's kind of chubby. And he ends up pointing out that the guy had a big belly. And, and 
Khrushchev is laughing and the guy's laughing and they're both having fun. And you see that the faces of the people around Khrushchev start to change a little bit. Like, hey, this guy's kind of a kid or he's kind of a, a jokester. And, and that kind of breaks the ice oftentimes, although it's going to be a difficult, it's not going to be easy, uh, a too easy two week tour because, you know, Khrushchev, you know, being a leader of the Soviet Union and being in the middle of the Cold War, he's oftentimes going to say things that will eventually be misconstrued. Apparently early on in, um, in the late fifties, he said something that the West took as we will bury you. You guys might hear about this a little bit more when you're in uh, AP US history or just US history. Uh, during a speech that he gave in the Soviet Union, he was quoted, the West quoted him as saying that when this is all said and done, when uh, the Soviet Union wins the Cold War, don't worry, America, we will bury you, right? We'll take care of your dead. We'll bury all the dead. It got misconstrued. It wasn't in that means that we we're going to, the Soviets are going to bury all the Americans. But the way the Americans took it and formed it, that's what was shown in the press here. And so he had been asked many, many, many times about this quote, about this quote, about this quote, to a point of maybe vomiting. And so he was asked one, two, three, four, five times. And Khrushchev at at a point got irate and said, you know, does anybody listen? I've already spoken about this. Why do you keep asking me? Why do you keep asking me? I've already spoken about this. You guys keep asking me. So after New York, he goes to, uh, to Hollywood. Please watch that clip. That is a great clip. There is the... Uh, LA mayor, his name is uh, Norris Polson. When you first click on the video, he is the guy with the glasses on the left hand side. He's one of the first guys you're going to see, and he has his hands over his face. He's covering his mouth. He, uh, Norris Polson has just gone up and let Khrushchev have it. Norris Polson thought he was joking, or at least he thought he was joking, but he was very serious. These are this is in front of uh, Hollywood movie stars. There's Marilyn Monroe. There's Frank Sinatra. They've all come to to visit and actually have a, a luncheon with the premier of uh, the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev. And so Norris Polson goes up there and he rips, jokingly, rips uh, Khrushchev a new one. And Khrushchev is going to make Norris Polson crap his pants. He goes up there and he makes everybody see that he's not joking, that Khrushchev is not joking. He'll talk about how he had um, his one of his days that he wanted to go take his children to Disneyland and that got canceled. He'll be talking about it in the video clip saying that the United States told him that they could not guarantee his survival or his safety at uh, Disneyland. And he says, what do you think? What is there? Uh, are there uh, nuclear weapons at Disneyland? Or do you have gangsters that can easily get me? What what?" And everybody in the room just kind of goes from laughter to going to, uh, uh-oh. Because here's the guy of the Soviet Union in the middle of the Cold War. If you're going to end up pissing this guy off and he goes along, goes back home and says, American people are horrible. Let's go you know, launch nuclear weapons against them. Well, man, Norris Polson is crapping his pants thinking, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What have I done? What have I done? Khrushchev eventually, um, when he leaves the meeting, and he's going to be in a car or in a, in a train, and he's going to be driving up California. He's going to turn to one of his uh, compatriots, and he's going to tell them that he felt good that he made the, the mayor of Los Angeles crap his pants. And jokingly, right? He, because he, he needs to kind of keep up this facade for the American public as well. That yeah, I'm a, I'm a friendly guy, but I'm I'm friendly to a certain point. You know, I'm still the leader of a country, and if you push me to a certain extent, I'm I'm going to push back. I'm not going to sit around, you know, just take people's crap. And then the last part is him wanting to mingle, trying to show more of a, a human 
sets. Um, let's go ahead and, and move on. Hopefully take a moment to, to look at those and then you guys, or on your own time, you guys can check that out. The next uh, slide is 1962. I think I made a mistake last time. I said it was 1963, the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it's 1962. Uh, in 1961, the CIA starts aiding former uh, or Cuban exiles, Cubans that were kicked out during the Batista Bautista uh, era, uh, started giving them weapons and teaching them uh, military tactics and tried to uh, have these Cuban exiles take Cuba back, kick out the Communist Party, uh, end uh, Fidel Castro's rule, uh, and it became a huge failure, and it was known as the Bay of Pigs invasion. They invaded an area known as the Bayo de Puercos, Bay of Pigs. Um, and because the United States did not offer any air support because they thought it could potentially risk generating a third world war, um, they backed off. And so any of those Cuban exiles, as they were attempting to hit the beaches, they were all slaughtered before they even hit the sand. Um, with that, seeing that the Soviet Union has a communist island of Cuba as one of their close friends, the Soviet Union wanted to guarantee that the United States would not invade Cuba again. And so the Soviet Union started shipping in, secretly shipping in, uh, medium and intermediate range missiles and stationed them in Cuba. And this is not too far off the coast of Florida. And with those missiles, I think there's some maps that are out there, with the missiles, they could reach, um, you know, I've heard Seattle is the only city that couldn't be hit. More than likely, the Western states, even Los Angeles, could not have been hit. More of the Midwest, but they could hit major cities on the East Coast, including Washington, D.C., New York City, and of course, anything from Florida all the way up to, to Maine. And so there became a, a potential threat. Once the United States um, flies over Cuba, takes pictures with the U-2 spy planes that they do have, and eventually gets low-flying airplanes to come in and snap better images, the United States will show the United Nations the images and ask the Soviet Union, why are they stationing nuclear weapons in, in Cuba? And a 13-day standoff is going to take place, including the Soviet Union attempting to bring in more weapons or more nuclear fuel into Cuba. And the U.S. Navy is going to issue a blockade. Now, a blockade historically means that that is a threat of war or an act of war. But instead of calling a blockade, President Kennedy at the time is going to call it a quarantine so that you know it, the term is not used, let's say, as a... Uh, as a term of war to say, wait a second, it's a blockade. No, 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 we're not calling it a blockade. It's a quarantine. It's a quarantine to keep the people of Cuba safe as well as the United States safe. So for 13 days, this is the closest that we ever got in the Cold War to launching nuclear missiles in both directions. And luckily, once the 13 days were over, there was an agreement made on behalf of the Soviet Union and the United States. The Soviet Union promised and did remove all of their missiles from Cuba if the United States would say yes to two things. One, would openly promise never to invade Cuba again. Remember that they had supplied weapons for the Bay of Pigs invasion. So the United States would have to promise never to invade Cuba. And number two, we would have to remove our Jupiter missiles from Italy and Turkey. Now, the Jupiter missiles had been in Italy and Turkey for quite a while, and those were pretty much obsolete. They were old uh, old missiles that really weren't the standard in 1962. But according to the Soviet Union, if the United States had Jupiter missiles, almost like uh, a Mexican standoff, let's say, and the United States had a gun pressed at the temple of the Soviet Union, because Turkey and Italy, not too far away from some of the first areas of the Soviet Union, 
if the United States had a gun placed at the temple of the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union didn't have any gun placed at the temple of the United States, that means that the United States would be an advantage. It could launch missiles from Europe and um, Western uh, Western Asia, or uh, Asia Minor, I guess would be the older term, uh, and that could hit the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union would not have any response. But if the Soviet Union brought weapons to Cuba, then they would mimic the same kind of Mexican standoff. They would have a gun out pointed at us. We'd have a gun out pointed at them. And if one person fired, then the other person would fire and we kind of kill everybody off. So we promise but not to, to never invade and then also take the missiles away from Italy and Turkey. But if you look at it, it was much more of a success for Khrushchev because we had to capitulate on two parts, right? We had to promise never to invade and secretly at first we would remove our missiles and then eventually as time would pass, we would tell the American public that we removed our missiles from Cuba because Kennedy was afraid that if he was to do this with an election coming up eventually, that he, that the American public would see him as being weak. And so we asked the Soviet Union not to publish and not to put that out in the open. And eventually time did pass and the United States understood that the missiles were removed from Italy and Turkey. And so we had to kind of you know, surrender twice the amount of what the Soviet Union uh, did. But luckily, luckily, we're all here talking about it now and not talking about uh, how once there was a United States and once there was a Soviet Union, if we would have survived. But Cuban Missile Crisis, once again, the closest we ever came to the actual launching of nuclear weapons. The next uh, image or a slide you're going to see is 1968 Czechoslovakia. Now, 1956, there was a revolt in Hungary. In 1968, Czechoslovakia is going to do something, I'm not going to say similar, because it's not a revolt, but it is an attempt to change or reform communism. In 1968, Alexander Dubček became the leader of, a Czech, of the Czechoslovakian Communist Party, and he and his communists pushed for more social and political liberalization of communism. So please take a moment to watch the Czechoslovakian revolt of 1968. It's one of the videos on here. Then afterwards, you want to read the Brezhnev Doctrine in 1968 and answer the three questions. And ask yourself the question here, once you read the Brezhnev Doctrine, is this a period of re-Stalinization? Are we bringing Stalin and the old world communist, the old world Soviets back in order? Watch that video and then read that doctrine and answer the questions. We'll come right back. Now, I'm still here. Hopefully, you guys uh, watched that video. And you read the uh, the doctrine and answered the three questions. Now, let's look at the video itself, all right? Czechoslovakia, 1968. This is the same time that we are getting closer and closer to the end or towards the middle to end part of the Vietnam War. Um, there is a, um, I don't want to say there's a hippie culture in, uh, in Europe, but there seems to definitely be something changing socially around the world. And Czechoslovakia is also going through this as well. With the arrival of Alexander Dubček, his communists want to provide communism, and hopefully you guys heard this in the video, communism with a human face. Now, what exactly does that mean, communism with a human face? Well, communism, let's just say this, right? I mean, if, if, if we were to say the word communism, we just walk into a classroom and say the word communism, there might be, maybe not so many people today, uh, but there might be people back in the 1980s, and I wasn't growing up as a kid. Um, the 70s and the 60s, that when they heard the word communism, they would go, ew, communism? You live in a communist state? <gasps> it, it always has a negative connotation, almost as if that communists are 
demonized. That they're, they're a bunch of demons. And they're evil and they're sinister. And why is that? Alexander Dubček and his communist members in uh, Czechoslovakia would ask. Why is it that when we say the word communism, that there is this connotation that it's negative, that there's something wrong with it? If communism, according to Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, is supposed to be equality, um, monetary equality, brotherhood, uh, the elimination of class system, if it is supposed to be great ideas, great ideals, why is it that the world, when they hear the word communism, they still shudder and they go, Ugh communism. Well, maybe it's time to change communism. Maybe it's time to get rid of the demonization image of communism and provide communism with a more human face. That communism can be accepted by the West. That communism can be okay. We can have the best of both worlds. We can marry communism with democracy and maybe even communism with a little bit of capitalist flavor. You can have the idea of looking out for your fellow man and providing equality, but also have some of the great elements of westernized society, like democracy and freedom of speech. This is why we're talking about liberalization of, of um, the socialist system. And I think if, if you guys watch the video and you get to, I believe his name is Gold... Goldstrucker, I think is his name. He, there's a quote that he says at the very end, right? That the, the liberalization is not accepted by the Soviet Union. Um, the idea here that the Brezhnev Doctrine is trying to say is that any changes, any changes, small to large, that take place in Eastern Europe have to be on behalf of the Soviet Union. That those Eastern European states do not have a say. Any and all change can only come from the Soviet Union. So even though Czechoslovakia believes themselves to be an independent state, they can't change. They cannot reform unless the Soviet Union uh, does it or allows them to. So it, it kind of strips Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, Albania, East Germany of any ideas of independence and pretty much tells them, no, 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 you're simply a puppet of the Soviet Union. Any change is dictated from the Soviet Union, not you, not these states. The Soviet Union will come in with the Warsaw Pact countries, uh, about 500,000 men, and they will crush the revolt uh, or crush the, 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 the view of the Czechs just wanting a little bit of uh, more liberalization. And that, that gentleman, Goldstrucker, I think is what his name is, he says, he says uh, there's part where he's talking about the Nazis. He says uh, for many years, the, um, he talks about how that, the Nazi uh, takeover was less sinister than that or that the the uh, Soviet takeover was worse than the Nazis. He says, because the Nazis were their declared enemy. And I think if I'm quoting him correctly, they didn't expect anything but the worst from Hitler. But for many years, the communists, the Eastern, uh, the Bloc, Eastern Bloc countries, the Warsaw Pact countries were their brothers, the guarantors of their freedom. Right? For the last three or four decades have been telling them what, you know, we're all in this together. They came in with a army of half a million men, to crush, to suppress, to murder the Czechoslovakians' people wants to simply marry communism with westernization, with Western democracy, to liberalize it. And Brezhnev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev at the time, simply said, nope, that's not going to happen. And, and you got to think about this from the Soviet perspective. If the Soviet Union allowed Czechoslovakia to disobey, go rogue, start changing communism in the East, then it's going to happen with Poland and it'll happen with East Germany and it'll happen with Bulgaria. And next thing you know, the Soviet Union could risk 
losing that buffer zone that they so desperately wanted after the Second World War that would expose them potentially to, in this case, a Cold War, but what they thought was going to happen in a Third World War. And so the Soviet Union says, absolutely not. They come in with their men, as well as other countries' men, and suppress the Czechoslovakians, what they call the Prague Spring in 1968, and basically eliminate it completely. All right. We're going to end that part right now on the uh, the notes, specifically looking at the middle section of the Cold War, and we're going to start looking at post-war European society. And so for this next part, in looking at Cold War or post-war society, 1945 to 1968, or around, they were probably dipping a little bit more in the 1970s, really, with uh, some of the gas uh, price issues. So um, let's go ahead and move on here. All right. So science and technology is the first slide. I'd say for this one, you probably want to just uh, pay attention to it. If you want to take some notes on it, great. You'll have some questions on your quiz based off of this section as well, not just on the Cold War. Um, science and technology made huge amounts of gains after 1940. Uh, World War II was a major game changer in the development of science and technology with airfare or airplane warfare. Um, you're going to be going quickly from the propeller planes of the Second World War eventually to jet propulsion and jet technology that the Nazis created or issued or made and then eventually have that jet propulsion placed on airplanes. And already by 1950 in the Korean War, major conflict after the Second World War, you're going to have airplanes that are going to be flying on jet propulsion, no longer the propeller as well as the major advancements and scary advancements, of course, of the atomic bombs and moving in that direction. This became known as the era of big science. And this term was used to describe the change in science which occurred in industrial nations during and then after World War II. The problem here with the era of big science is that in the early stages of this era, it was very expensive. Um, you, You did not have companies that had the capital or the money to do these things on their own. And that's not the case today. So when I say these things, like for example, NASA. In the 1960s, if we were gonna send a man to the moon, we're gonna put one of the first humans in outer space, or we're gonna send animals in outer space. There is no company in 1960s that has enough capital, enough money to build a space uh, company, Uh, to build a rocket, to build a space station, to send astronauts into outer space. You don't have that capital. You don't have private businesses. That's not the case today. So you need governments to fund that. So NASA, for example, NASA is funded by the United States government. Uh, The same thing with the Soviet Union. When it becomes a space race to see who can be the first on the moon or outer space, it's funded by the, the socialist state. You know, now these days, You know, you have companies both in Russia, I think even here in the United States that say, hey, if you pay us enough money, we'll send your button in outer space. You know, you want to go in outer space? We'll launch you and go out outer space. I think it was one of the, who is this? Uh, One of the singers of the, not the Backstreet Boys, but NSYNC. Uh, You guys are probably like, who the hell's NSYNC? Um, Who paid, I think like a million dollars or something because he wanted to go to outer space. And eventually, I think it was a fraud or something. He never got his button in outer space, but uh I can't remember what his name was. That's neither here nor there. Um, but once again, the idea of big science, too expensive. Um, you know, now you might have like, you know, like Tesla Corporation or uh, Amazon, for example. You might have these companies that are, have so much wealth that they can probably 
if they want to have enough money to build rockets on their own, the technology uh, is there where they can have private companies that can launch, you know, satellites in outer space when they want or put people in outer space when they want, or perhaps maybe even send missions to the moon or send missions to, uh, to Mars without the government funding it. And so the next slide, you guys have seen this one before from the previous um, slides that we had on the Cold War. This is once again, just kind of letting us know about the gap in the space race that we started with the atomic bomb and then eventually the Soviets have their own. The H-bomb in 52, the Soviets have theirs in 53. They're narrowing the, uh, the re they're reducing the gap between us and them. And then eventually in 57, ICBMs are set. Uh, and then we have nothing. <laughs> we, the Soviets put their first satellite Sputnik into outer space. And then we follow up the following year, 1958. So we are, we're behind the times when it comes to science and technology by the time we get to the 1950s. But that's going to change. I, I guess it's going to change. I think if you look at the Soviet Union and all the great things that they did in the early 50s and early 60s, they were the first to put a man in outer space. Uh, Yuri Gagarin, I believe is his, his name. Um, they were the first to put a woman in outer space. Uh, they were the first satellite in outer space. And what did we do? We were the first to put a man on the moon. And then there's people who even criticize that, right? Do we actually put a man on the moon or is it some, you know, some Hollywood studio because the flag, if you notice the flag, it's moving and there's not supposed to be wind on the moon or whatever the case might be. It's like, man, they even get to the moon and people are like, no, no way. This is just, it's a cold war and we're just trying to come up with some back Hollywood lot uh, vision of what it meant to be on the moon or what it looks like. And man, you can't even get to the moon these days. All right. If you guys go to the next slide. Uh, middle class changes, so kind of the old way of the middle class versus the new way in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. So the old way of the middle class, if we go back to the late 1800s and the 1900s, you usually had independent, self-employed um, businesses. You owned a business. You practiced a liberal profession. Once again, going back from the 1800s to about 1945, property was inherited. Strong family ties were usually typical of what it meant to be part of the middle class but the new middle class kind of changes in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. You started to have people in the middle class who became managers and owners, became leaders, especially in corporations, and that you were in an organization, you were in a corporation, and you worked your way up to a, a higher social position. So you didn't necessarily have to own your own business or practice your own liberal um, profession. You could join a business and kind of work your way up to middle management, you know, uh, you know, one day, <laughs> there's this line from, um, what is it, uh, not living in America. No. Anyways, there's a line in an old movie. Um, Louis Anderson says, you know, I'm uh, you know, one of these days, I'm going to, I'll be working a cash register. But then in a couple months, I'll be on fries. And that's where the big bucks come in or something like that. You're kind of working your way up in an organization in order to you know, maybe become a manager of a corporation or a manager of a section, or you become, you know, maybe leader of the Western United States when it comes to a sales position. You, know, you have your states that you cover, or you become a CEO of a company, or whatever the case might be. You kind of work your way up, and that became the new middle class on what to try to achieve when it came to money and power within your work. Now, why the change? If you guys click to the next slide. Why the change? Uh, increase in industrial and technical expansion created the need for managers and technologists. 
So just industry, industry changes. And with the changes, you need people to fit in with those changes. No longer do you need a common worker. You need somebody to be a manager, someone to actually work the technology. And the old middle class lost control of their family-owned properties in many states, especially in Europe after the war. Um, you know, some of the land is going to be taken and given out to the populations to kind of create, create more of an equity-based view. Right? Everybody should get a piece of the pie. Uh, and this meant a need for well-trained and educated professionals. So you might have to go back to school, maybe work on that degree in order to get that next position or be able to work your way up to middle management. Uh, next slide. Even more changes are going to take place. Uh, in Europe, the government welfare uh, is going to be implemented to try to create more equity in European society. So in the 1940s and 50s, you're going to see an increase in taxation on the rich. And then that money is going to be issued to the poor people or the working class people to give them, once again, you're trying to equal out society, create equity, take from the rich, give to the poor, give to the people who are needed so they have something to work with as well. Right. Um, this helped create a rise in the standard of living and it helped create a European consumer culture. Car sales started to decrease in Europe. They went through a new gadget revolution in Europe. Once again, this is after the Second World War. This is farther after the Second World War, more 1950s than the late 40s. And also it increases, a, uh, a there's a rise in leisure and recreation, right? Leisure is what you do on your off time and recreation, what you do for, for fun. Some of the images that you might see here are really common both in the American consumer culture as well as European consumer culture. Um, on the far right, you have radios. This is, of course, what a family might do before the television, right? Instead of sitting down and watching a television, uh, a vacuum tube television, you might sit in front of the radio and you listen to broadcasts, or they might do um, spectacular events and shows and musics. And um, you know, maybe you've listened to your soap operas, but they're not on television. You just listen to the, the drama, you know. Uh, moving on towards the left, that pink, real interesting device. Does anybody know what that is? That is a washing machine. The, where the white cap is, is where you, un you unscrew it, you put in the clothes, and then eventually washes the clothes. And the part on top is a ringer, all right? Whereas washing machines today have the, a spin cycle where you spin it to try to get the water out of it. Well, this one doesn't have a spin cycle. So you actually put the clothes through the ringer and it wrings out as much of the liquid as possible. And then eventually you can use weird technology that's even available these days as it was back in the day. But especially since we live here in Southern California, you can hang your clothes outside in the sun. I mean, I'm looking outside right now through, uh, through the window over here. It's a beautiful day, beautiful blue skies. And you can use the heat of the sun to actually um, uh, dry off your clothes. You don't have, you don't need a dryer, but then, you know, people say, no, we need a dryer, you know? Well, yeah, maybe if you live in Minnesota in the wintertime, you might need a dryer, but a lot of houses back in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, even to the early 80s, you used to have their little pole that eventually had like a square or sometimes like a pentagon type of uh, shape where you had your wires and you would hang all your clothes outside in that area. It's almost like every house came with one. If it didn't come with one, you can go out to like Sears and go buy it in the 1950s and 1960s. Moving on from there, you have a television eventually. So the radio gets thrown out as far as the main information hub. Eventually, the um, tube TV is going to come in. And I think one of the interesting ones here is on the very left-hand side. That is a man who has a vacuum cleaner who is coming in uh, and displaying within a home what the vacuum can do. You would have door-to-door -door salesmen. Sometimes they still exist today. Um, 
But you'll have door-to-door salesmen that would come with an actual vacuum cleaner. They'd carry a vacuum with uh, them and they would bring dirt with them and they knock on the door. And, you know, this was still at a time where maybe the, the, the woman of the house was still at home, wasn't working fifties and maybe into the early sixties. And so the, they would knock on the door. Woman would open up the door and they say, ma'am, uh, can I interest you in a fine, uh, you know, uh, Hoover vacuum and, uh, ma'am, if you take a moment of your time and, and they would come into your home they plug into your electric uh, electricity and your electrical plugs. They would dump something on the floor, maybe flour or dirt, and they would vacuum up the dirt in front of you because they needed to actually show you the power of the, the vacuum technology or whatever. And then you could order one or you could buy one. They would even do it pianos. Um, you, know, you can't actually bring a, a you know grand piano with you. So they would, they would actually make a smaller portable piano. It fit. I mean, it was all... To the, to the nines, it looks exactly like and played exactly like one, but they would bring it and they would show it into your home and they'd say, yeah, this is exactly what you'd get, of course, in a larger size, um, but door-to-door salesmen. People had money and uh, with money, it's more of a consumer culture. You want to spend that money. Well, there's going to be companies that are going to be fighting for your money. Okay, uh, moving on to the next slide. It's going to say newer roles for women. Once again, we're looking at the old way versus the new way. So old way, 1800s to early 1900s. Um, women oftentimes married late. They bore several children. Between a third to half would not survive adulthood. Um, not too long ago, we looked at our family tree on my dad's side and one of his great, great uncles. So this is uh, late 1800s and then early, late 1800s maybe even 18, maybe, maybe mid 1800s had something like 17 kids, but half of them died and half of them died within the first two years of their life within the first months of their life to two years of their life. Um, I think one of the children's name was Giovanni and he died and then they had a daughter and they called her Giovanna and then she died. And then the next kid they had was a boy and they called him Giovanni and then he died. And then they, another one was born and her name was Giovanna and she survived. And the next kid was named some. Man, but if you know, geez, and it, it it was it was normal and it was natural, especially in certain parts of of Europe in the 1800s, that your children would not survive. Um, women were primarily seen as their role of mother, and her place was the home. However, as we're moving from the 1950s into the 1970s, women started marrying earlier, and this is once again due to better incomes. Right, if you have money. Uh, if there's more wealth out there, then life kind of gets sped up, all right? You don't have to wait until you have money in order to get married and have a family. If that's what your, if that's what your goal, let's say, is you want to get married and have a family, you can do it earlier because you have the money. You can do it at 24. You can do it at 21. You know, you can, I have an aunt that got married even earlier uh, than that. She was a teenager, I think, when she got uh, married. Um, but once again, if you have the money and you have the income, life kind of gets sped up. If you don't have the money and the income, it might get pushed back a little bit. And it all depends, right? If people are ready for marriage, if they don't want to get married, if they do, you know, it's, and then it becomes uh, individual to the individual person. Uh, improved diets, improve and contraception. Contraception, meaning whatever you're taking uh, to not have children. That might be, let's say, the pill, for example, or a, um, uh, a condom, something like that. Uh, led to uh, a population increase from the 50s and the 70s. This is the period after the post-war world where you have the baby boom. 
a lot of the American GIs and even Europeans are going to come back to uh, their homes. They're going to get married and have a huge amount of children. And this is the, the retirement generation that we have here in the United States. My parents are part of the baby boomer generation. My mom was born in 1950. My dad was born in 1949. My grandfather, uh, my both my grandfathers were in the, the Italian Navy during the war. And so they survived and eventually had more children um, during the war and eventually, uh, of course, after the war. Uh, and that huge boom takes place. And so that those children are going to be born in the 50s, but they'll become teenagers in the 60s. And with that huge boom of population, something's going to change even there for teens. Uh, child rearing did not occupy a woman's life from the 50s to the 70s. So there might be an opportunity for to have them get a, a job outside of the home. Uh, some of them are going to shift from heavy industry to more white collar type of position. So instead of working in factories, especially what was common in the war, you might be working in an office and they might actually have to go back and get more education so they can end up becoming more trained professionals. All right, let's talk about the youth and uh, the culture of the 1950s and the 1960s. So youth and counterculture. In the 1950s, the, the generation of children became known as the silent generation. Now that's not because they were silent or, you know, nuclear fallout took their tongues away or something or no, they they didn't speak to one another. They were silent because they didn't have wealth. They didn't have money. What they're trying to say here through the, the term silent generation is that those people who have money speak up. They're more powerful. The people who don't have money, uh, they're not as influential in society. And so the 1950s, you know, if you can see in the picture over here, they're going to like a little hop. Uh, there's, a, there's a jukebox in the background. They're getting a, a malt. They're going to uh, the malt shop. I think, you know, kind of iconic imagery of the 1950s. And if you go to the next image, you're going to see maybe some of the male fashions that they would wear in Europe. They almost look like they're rockabilly heading into rock and roll. And then the girls, um, almost all of them have like kind of these uh, high water or capri pants or their jeans that are kind of, um, rolled up and their hair kind of tied back, um, you know, really iconic imagery of the 1950s. And then the 1950s, late 50s and early 60s, if you guys go to the next slide where it says youth and counterculture, you'll see three really interesting images of maybe the youth in the 1960s. Uh, you have the development of what is becoming known or what became known as the beat movement or AKA the hippie movement. Um, the generation changed with the huge boom in population that came from the baby boom generation. There's more kids that are out there, more kids, more consumer culture, more jobs available for those kids. They have more money in their pocket. And so they want a, a greater say in society. Now you also have the Vietnam war, not so much affecting uh, European culture uh, as it is uh, um, American culture. But that generation is definitely of pop culture is definitely going from the United States and kind of bleeding into European um, social uh, existence, especially in the 1960s. And so four major ideas that are usually meshed well with the hippie or the beat movement is increased sexual behavior. And oftentimes that sexual behavior happened before marriage. So it kind of defied social customs. If the social custom, and that's the third bullet point here. If the social custom was first to um, meet someone and you are going to date them, 
And then after dating them, there's a proposal. And then after the proposal, there uh, there's the engagement. And the engagement leads to the marriage. Marriage, you buy house, house, then children, children, and so on and so forth. Right? It's almost like that's the social expectation. But we know that we've talked about this plenty. This is nothing new, right? There's nothing new under the sun when we've been looking at uh, history here in, in Europe. We've go all the way back to one of the first social periods that we looked at, and we know that people were engaging in sex before marriage way before, right? We talked about how guys were leaving their girlfriends who were pregnant on the altar because they didn't have the money. Uh, you know, some of them being yes, taking advantage and saying yes, we you know I don't want to get married, but some of them didn't have the money to get married, and so they would leave the girls uh, in a state of pregnancy and. You know, the girl's life would be completely destroyed. Um, this is changing, however, as far as the social customs. So the next generation doesn't want to get married and then have children. They might date and get or have children and then get married, or maybe not even get married. And uh, it, it, you know, it's kind of a shock to the old. Uh, individuals of the 1950s and 1940s, because that's not how it's supposed to be, right? That's not, you know, and, but for their generation, they're taking it from a different perspective. They're, they're starting to defy those old customs. They did see an increase in drug use as well as communal behavior. Communal behavior almost meaning like, you know, kind of a communist hippie commune, you know, hey guys, hey, how about we all just kind of live together, man? We'll all just live together and we'll take care of one another. Yeah, come. That type of communal behavior. Well, why the change? If you guys click to the next slide, mass communication, youth travel, linked the continents together. So there became, once again, that bleeding over of American pop culture to European pop culture. And that's one of the things about pop culture. It's really, um, it's intense. It is overpowering many times. Uh, it becomes popular. It's what the people do and the way they dress, the way they act, the tendencies that people have. Oftentimes we mimic that from, uh, from one another. Baby boom meant a larger part of the population could influence the community. Here in the United States, um, before the voting age was lowered to 18, it used to be 21. But that meant that a young boy or young girl could be drafted, be put in the army, could go and fight and potentially die for their country, but they couldn't have a voice in government and actually change the law. And so we lower the vote to 18, which means, of course, now you have teenagers, right? 18-year-olds that become more influential in politics. They become more influential in society and they have a greater say. And so they're no longer that silent generation from the 1950s. They're much more of a vocal generation. They have a say in society. Greater equality, greater purchasing power, uh, more money, more power to purchase, and good jobs were available in the 1960s and the 1950s. You could potentially have a family and raise a family you know, working at a shop or working in a restaurant. Not to say that that's something that's you know, negative. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to say. But um, you know, today and these days, you might need a better paying job, uh, potentially to have enough money to raise a family, take care of a family, raise a family, and then stay you know, decently well taken care of. Uh, youth unrest was also really typical in the 1960s. If you guys click to the next slide, uh, counterculture came up against the Vietnam War here in the United States and also counterculture in places like France. So the image that you see on the bottom left-hand side, those are American hippies, I guess you might say, or youth culture, a uh, young lady who's extending a rose to some military police officers, the MPs that are there. Um, you know, I think you've seen some of these iconic ones. Sometimes they show like a rifle and there's somebody putting a flower at the end of the rifle, you know, trying to 
make it into a you know, I don't know, symbol of peace, but this contrast between the militant uh, government and the peaceful citizens. Um, less educational opportunities in, in Europe. Um, in America, uh, 22% of Americans have the opportunity to actually go on to college and get a degree, where that was only 3 to 4% in Europe around the same time in the 19, late 50s, early 60s. And that led to student revolts and, and riots. And you see some of the imagery in 1968 in France. French students were rioting because of that, that there was not the same educational opportunities for all people. It's almost as if the conservatives, uh, the upper middle class, were the ones that constantly had their kids have the best opportunities while everyone else uh, was repressed. Economic troubles, eventually. Um, if we click to the next slide, uh, the United States sent billions around the world to safeguard American uh, interests. Um, in the 1960s, late 60s, early 70s, we have the Vietnam War that uh, is really occupying a lot of Americans, America's time. And then we, in the 1970s, also back uh, Israel um, and support Israel. In 1973, there is the War of Yom Kippur. And the Arab states, who make up mostly uh, OPEC, decide that they are going to embargo, place an embargo on the United States and stop the sale of oil to the United States. Um, huge, massive unemployment worldwide takes place. We go through a, an economic disaster that would be the worst since the Great Depression, although some people are talking about unemployment being high today and uh, even you know, as high as or the highest it's been since the Great Depression today. That's, of course, because we're all at home. And so, you know, once the quarantine is over, then we, you know, short term, yeah, it looks pretty bad. Let's talk about it long term when we have an opportunity to kind of look back 2020. Um, but one of the problems that took place here in the United States when the gas prices started to, to rise, there was a shortage of gasoline. You couldn't get it all the time. So if you guys click to the next slide, you're going to see four images of what it was like to have to line up in the 1970s, 73 specifically, and wait for gas. And so the top left-hand side, it says gas shortage, sales limited to 10 gallons of gas per customer. And of course, these are not, you know, these are gas guzzling cars. These are not kind of the, uh, the economic cars that we have where you can fill up gas and you can go 500 miles. This is, these are cars that you fill up with gas and, you know, you'd be lucky if you can go home and you turn on your car and you've already just wasted, you know, two gallons of gas just by turning on your car. Um, the one at the top right-hand side says our station hours are reduced due to gas shortage. Sorry. Um, there's a guy waiting in line down here on the bottom right. There's a line of cars going up to the gas shop. He's trying to get some gasoline in his, in his lawnmower, I guess, you know, why he, why did you have to go with the lawnmower? I mean, couldn't you just get anyways. And then on, on the bottom right, uh, left-hand side, you're going to see some cars lined up. There's a color photo and it says even numbers only. So what the U S did to try to limit the amount of gas was they actually allowed only cars, certain cars, um, uh, to get gas up on certain days. If you had even numbers, I believe it was even was Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and odds were Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday was either a jolly day where any, if they had gas, everybody could go, or sometimes they would close it down on Sunday. So you had to look at your calendar and say, okay, well, my car usually full can go four or five days. Well, that means I got to gas up on that fifth day or sixth day, whatever it might be. I need to make sure that I gas up before, because let's say, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow is not your day to gas up. You better gas up now or you might not have enough gas to make it past that last day before you can gas up yet again. All right, moving on to the next slide. We have, I think, just uh, this is the last one. 
So England, the United States, and France, these are all reactions, uh, tried various ways to assist their populations with economic troubles during the 1970s. We, of course, coming out in the 70s of the um, Vietnam War and having the, the gas troubles in the 1970s, England and France are going to go through a period of, um, of stagnation. Um, it seems to be that the global economy is kind of winding down and there's no new ways of regenerating money or regenerating or placing money into the economy to kind of regenerate it. Uh, there is a computer revolution that is also starting in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, that's going to help businesses find a cheaper way um, to have an increase in business. On the right-hand side, a new healthier lifestyle became important. Uh, postponement of marriage. Remember, no money means you might have to push back on marriage. And so whereas the 1950s and 60s saw an increase of marriage at a younger age, by the time we hit economic recession in the 1970s, we're postponing marriage to a later age. A lot of people are going to go back to school. I think this is true even you know going back to 2003, 2004, when we were going through um, or 2007, excuse me, 2007, 2008, with the recession that we went through, a lot of people lost their jobs and a lot of Americans decided, Hey, it's time to go back to school. It's time to get a degree. Maybe there might be a job where I can get a degree and I can get a good paying job now, or maybe change my direction and do something with a, a degree. And then economic necessity called for women of all classes to work outside the home in order to create a second income. So by the time we're hitting the 1970s, one person working alone, single household worker, is not going to be enough to guarantee the success, survival of the family, and allow the family to live comfortable. So that means that maybe husband and wife or two individuals in the family might have to go and work um, instead of having, let's say, one work outside the home and then one staying inside the home. All right, that is going to end the uh, the notes and end the information for you guys. Uh, let's take a moment to remind ourselves what we're looking at here for your lesson. Uh, I believe the lesson is going to be out of 150 points, if I'm not too uh, mistaken. All right, so let's um, – where are we here? Here we are. All right. So you guys have the podcast. You have the PowerPoint that we're, uh, you guys went through. You have the two videos of Hungary and Czechoslovakia. You have to complete the Soviet documents that you did earlier on. There are um, a set of questions. I think there are three questions per reading, 10 points each. So it's 120 points in total. And then there's a summary question that you also need to complete. I'll put that up in just a moment. Uh, and then there's going to be, much like on the previous lesson, there will be a post-war society quiz. Um, that is going to be Cold War, the continuation of the Cold War events all the way through from the Khrushchev destalinization period to 1968, and Brezhnev doctrine, as well as some questions on post-war society. If you guys noticed on the previous quiz, there were some extra credit questions at the end. Uh, there's going to be some extra credit questions here. You want to score as best as possible on these quizzes. You'll notice your grades jump up if you get some of that extra credit. All right. Um, so summary question will be added up in a little bit and I will uh, talk to you guys next time. Once again, if you guys have any questions, please let me know and I'll try to get back to you as soon as possible. All right, guys, take care.